Well, in our Tuesday chapels this fall, we've been looking at God's original intent for us as men and women. God's original intent for us as men and women. And uh, we started by going all the way back to the beginning, in the beginning. We went back to the early chapters of Genesis, and uh, we're asking this question, who has God created us to be as men and women, and how does God command us to relate as men and women? And in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we start to get an answer to that question of who we are and how we're to relate. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us the amazing truth that God creates us in his image as humans, as male and female, that we bear his image equally. And we find out that we were created as men and women to complement, to be uh, compatible, not competitive. It says uh, early on in uh, Genesis chapter 2 that it's not good that the man is alone. Adam's alone at that point. And God says, I'm going to create for him a helper that's suitable to him, literally that corresponds to him, so that they will be better together than either one would be alone. So we saw that God's plan was beautiful. He made us as men and women in his image, and he had a, a wonderful design in mind. But then we got to Genesis 3, and things come off the rails. Genesis chapter 3, God's original intent gets bent, gets bent by sin. And when Adam and Eve sin, it unleashes this tsunami of hurt on the human race. And it makes things a lot harder for us as men and women to get along well. It complicates things. But there is a glimmer of hope there in Genesis 3 because the Lord promises that one day he would send one who would be the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And as you read the rest of Scripture, you find out that what was promised then was fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus, who by his death did crush the head of the serpent, Satan, and began to restore for us all that God created in us. So last time we were together, we actually went to the New Testament book of Ephesians and saw how God begins to restore in a beautiful way the relationship between men and women, specifically how he restores that relationship in the context of a marriage. And we saw that the pattern for a healthy, life-giving marriage is actually Christ Jesus and his church. A husband is told to love and to lead in the way that Christ leads the church, and a wife is told to follow his lead as the church does for Christ. And it says that's a picture of how complementarity comes together. Well, today I want to finish up this kind of mini-series by talking to you about how this relationship between men and women plays out not so much in marriage, but in ministry. How are we to work together when it comes to serving the Lord? What does that look like? Now, this is an important topic for all of you who are here today, especially for those of you who are in the college or in the seminary and who are starting to ask the Lord, Lord, how do you want me to serve you? What is your plan for my life? How can I best take this one life you've given me and invest it for your glory and your kingdom? So you have a high personal vested interest in knowing what God says for you in terms of serving him as a Christian, but also as a Christian man or a Christian woman. Now, I'm aware that the topic that I'm going to deal with today is one that has, that has generated significant discussion among Christians, even significant debate. People are passionate about this subject because this subject hits us very personally. It hits us right in this, the center of who we are as men and as women. 
So it's my desire is to look to scripture and say, Lord, how can we look at this and understand your words so that we can follow, we can kind of cut through some of the clutter, some of the commotion that's around us and get to what your word says. That's my desire today is to speak God's truth, but to do it in a gracious way that affirms God's heart. So what I'm going to do today is something a little differently than what I often do with you on Tuesdays. Instead of just focusing on one passage of Scripture and kind of going through that, today I want to take a little bit of a wider scope and a wider scan. Today I want to look through a number of passages that help put us to get, put together a theology of how men and women are to relate in the context of ministry. And what I want to do is look at a number of passages and give you four key truths, four central truths that I think can help shape a vision for how men and women function as servants of Christ and his church. And my prayer today, my hope today has been that what we see today would help you personally to kind of come to a clearer understanding of who God has made you to be as his child, but also as his son or daughter, and how you can serve him to the maximum capacity of your of your gifting, but also of his will. So that's where we're headed today. So we're going to be in a variety of scriptures, and I want to give you four things that I think can help shape a biblical theology of men and women in ministry. Now, to do that, we're going to need the Lord's help. So let me pray for us, okay? Father in heaven, I, just, I would ask today as we begin to open your word and deal with a subject that is incredibly beautiful, but also sometimes very difficult for us to grasp or to embrace I'm asking, first of all, that you would grant me, through your Holy Spirit, the ability to stay true to your word, both its meaning but also its tone. And I'm also asking that you would grant us receptive hearts that we could hear, understand, and embrace what you say, who you say we are as men and women in your service. And if that happens, Lord, if, if you can shape us, I'm praying that from this group of men and women, you will send out servants of yours who will be used by you to touch the world for Christ. And I ask this for his glory and his name and his kingdom. Amen. So I gave you some notes today, which I don't often do in chapel, but I gave you some notes because I thought you might want to jot some things down or at least have some things to look back on and uh, kind of evaluate. I would say to you what Paul said of the Berean Christians if you remember in Acts 17, Paul goes to this little town of Berea and he compliments them. He said, let me tell you what I liked about the Bereans. They didn't just take what I said as truth. They evaluated what I said in light of God's word. And Paul was not offended by that. In fact, Paul thought that was a great thing that these people were saying, well, Paul, I know that's what you said. Now we got to go to God's word and see what it says. And if the two match, then we're good. So what I'm going to ask you to do today is listen closely and look carefully at Scripture with me, and then be Bereans. Look at it closely. Evaluate. Is this what God's Word says? And if it is, then as someone who loves the Lord Jesus and loves His Word, then you're going to say, well, then that's it. That's what I want to be. Okay? So let's look at it. Let me give you four things. Here's number one. First thing I want to highlight is this. God designed men and women to partner in ministry. He designed us to partner in ministry. He had that in mind when he made us. He created us to partner together, to work together in ministry. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, let me show you something from the Old Testament and then something from the New. Start with the Old. In the Old Testament, we find that we are, as men and women, to partner in fulfilling the cultural mandate. 
We're to partner when it comes to fulfilling a mandate God gave us, sometimes called the cultural mandate. Uh, look with me again. I know we've been there before, but open up to Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28. I want you to notice something uh, that specifically ties into our topic today of how we partner together as men and women. Chapter 1, verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And the Lord blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in this, in this passage, which we've looked at before, it's really clear that when God creates humans, he creates them in two models, men and women. But he invests both men and women with his image. In the image of God, he created them. So that means that as a man or as a woman, you are an equal image bearer of God. You represent him on earth. You reflect him on earth. And I think there's some specific ways that God designed a man to reflect God that come out powerfully through him and some ways that God designed a woman to reflect God that come out powerfully through her. So we're equal in image and we're united in mission. You get the sense that both the man and the woman are given the same mission. Verse 28, God said to them, okay, not just to him, not just to her, but to them. God said to them, look at it, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. There's the mandate that says, I want you to have families. I want you to populate the earth. But then he says, subdue the earth and have dominion over it. He gives to the man and the woman a, a mandate to have stewardship over creation. We're like vice regents under God. And together we're charged with overseeing all the world, the, the, the planet, the fish, the, the animals, so that mandate is given to both men and women. Sometimes theologians call that the cultural mandate because it's really a mandate to create culture, to take dominion over the earth. By the way, one of the reasons that we as Christians should, be care, should care about ecological issues is not because it's trendy, but because God is the creator and he entrusted to us as humans stewardship of his planet. So we should be those who are voices for saying we got to take good care of the place that God made. But my point here today specifically is that God gives the mandate to both men and women. We're equal in essence. We're united in mission. So there's a partnership. Now we come to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we find that we are to partner in fulfilling the Great Commission. So not just the cultural mandate, which you could say is given to all humans, but now there's a great commission that's given to the church. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28 and look again at the very familiar words of Jesus at the end of chapter 28. I'll pick it up in verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, literally all the people group, all the ethnos, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In this context, we're told from verse 16 that the 11 were there. That would be the 12 minus Judas. There may have been others there too, because we know that in Jerusalem, when they gathered after a resurrection morning, it was both men and women in the room. So it could be that he's highlighting the 11, but there could have been a wider group. And Jesus gives this group a, a mission, the great commission. Go make disciples of all the people. Now, when we come to the book of Acts, it's very clear that this mission was given both to men and women who are followers of Christ. Because in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. The next thing we see is all that fledgling group of disciples, about 120, both men and women, gathered together and they're praying in Jerusalem. Because they've been told, stay there until the Holy Spirit comes and empowers you for your mission. And on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 tells us that the Holy Spirit comes upon them all and empowers them to speak the glories of God. Peter gets up and says, hey, this is what Joel the prophet said. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on your sons and your daughters. Like they're both going to be speaking the glories of God. So the Great Commission is a mission that involves both men and women in partnership. My point here is this, Old Testament new, you get the same story. God designed us as men and women to partner in his service, in his mission. Cultural mandate, great commission, okay? That's the first thing. And if you look down through the pages of the New Testament in the book of Acts, that's exactly what you find playing out. Men and women partnering on mission bringing the gospel to people around the world. When you look through the pages of history, that's exactly what you find over the course of time, men and women partnering to bring the gospel to the people of the world. So God designed us to partner in ministry. You say, okay, okay, that's good, but can you get a little more specific? Well, that's the second thing I want to highlight for you. The second thing I want you to see is this. Not only did God design men and women to partner in ministry, but secondly, God determines how men and women partner in ministry. So God designed us, and then he determined how the roles that we would play in his larger mission. God designed us, and then he determines how men and women partner in ministry. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we get a little bit of the clues on how God designed us and determines how we play our roles in his larger picture. For example, Eve is told that she will be the mother of all living. She is the one who will bear children. Part of the cultural mandate, fill the earth, is going to happen because Eve has the capacity to have children. Adam is told, you got to work the garden. And so he's there working, and after the fall, you know that he's told, hey, you still got the same job, but it's going to be a lot harder. You get these little clues that God's expecting Adam to take the lead in providing. You come to the New Testament, and the New Testament provides some interpretive commentary on Genesis 1 and 2. The New Testament fills in some of the gaps and begins to talk about how God determines how we, the roles that we play when it comes to serving Him. So we come to the New Testament, and we find that there is this partnership, and this partnership has specific parts for us to play. Let me kind of highlight two 
two kind of key things that fit under this idea of God determining how we serve him. Here's the first one. God gives men and women complementary roles in ministry. So how does God determine this? Well, he says, I'm going to give men and women complementary roles. They will be equal in essence, but they're not identical in their roles. They're given some specific shapes, some specific contours to how they serve him. Both roles are essential, but they're not identical. You say, well, what are those roles? Okay, here's the second thing. God follows the same basic pattern in ministry as he does in marriage. Okay, this was a helpful thought for me. When I, when I first kind of began to see this, God doesn't have different leadership structures for the home and the church. He actually has a similar pattern in the home and in the church, in marriage and in ministry. For example, start with marriage. In the marriage we saw in Ephesians 5, God calls the husband to be a spiritual leader following the pattern of Christ in the church. We saw that in Ephesians 5. So a husband is supposed to take the lead in giving spiritual leadership to his wife, to his family. Now, specifically, and here's the part you got to hear, leadership is defined by how Jesus led, not by how culture leads. And we're specifically told that Jesus was a loving leader who sacrificed himself for his bride. And Paul says to husbands, look, you've got to take the lead here, but you're going to need to do it like Jesus, which means your leadership will have to be selfless, not selfish. It will, be have, to, it will have to be sacrificial. You'll be laying down your life in little and big ways for the good of your bride. See, leadership is often hijacked in our culture to be about power and position and prestige. But that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus said, who's ever greatest among you will become the servant of all. So when he calls a husband to lead, what he's say, essentially saying is, you be the lead servant. You be the one that takes care of her. You give for her all you have the way I gave for my bride all I have. And then he calls the wife to follow that lead, to respond to that. So there's this roles within marriage. But please hear this. There's still a partnership. In any healthy family, in any healthy marriage, both husband and wife have a strong voice. You read the book of Proverbs. Solomon writes to his son often, my son, listen to the voice of your father. Listen to the voice of your mother. It's not just dad who's talking. It's dad and mom. There's this strong partnership where the woman brings all that God's made her to be. The man brings who God's made him to be. And they have some roles, but they're both equally invested in seeing that family become healthy. Now, take that model and bring it over to the church because that's what the New Testament does. Let me show you how it does it. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, please. 1 and 2 Timothy are really helpful. We call them part of the pastoral epistles because they tell us what the church is to be like and what pastors are to be doing. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I want you to see verses 14 and 15. Paul writes to Timothy and he says this, I hope to come to you soon. I'm in chapter 3, verse 14. But I am writing you these things so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Did you notice that Paul calls the church there, look at it in verse 15, the household of God. 
It's like what he's saying is, like, you know what a household is like for you. It's a small, your little family. But the church is like God's family. It's the household of God. And so Paul takes the metaphor that we're familiar with because we've been raised in families, and he says, you know what? That gives you a bit of a picture of what God's family is like. Now, what's, fa- what's fascinating to me is he keeps that idea going. For example, you come to chapter 5, and Paul says, hey, your church is supposed to feel like a healthy family. I know not all families are healthy, but a church is supposed to feel like a healthy family. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says to Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would, what? A father. And treat younger men as who? Brothers and older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in all purity. He's saying like the church should feel like a family. It's got papas and mamas. It's got brothers and sisters. And everybody's needed in this family, but everyone doesn't have the same role to play in the family. So when we come to 1 Timothy 3, Paul says, listen, as far as the papas in the family, I want godly men to be the papas. I want them to be the elders. You see that? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone desires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and then he goes on, the husband of one wife. He's saying, when it comes to having overseers, elders, I want you to find men, but not just any man. He doesn't get in just because of his gender. He gets in because he's a man who is a godly man, because he has to fit all these qualifications. And any of us who have ever been elders at churches, and some of us here have been, we know that this is a tall order. It makes us kind of sit up straight and say, Lord, I need your help. If I'm going to live out and be this kind of man, I'm going to need you. So Paul calls godly men to be the elders. And he calls those godly men, those elders, to take the primary role in being the teachers of the church. Look back at chapter 2, 1 Timothy 2, pick it up in verse 12. Paul says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. These verses are some of the more contentious verses in some circles right? Because it sounds a little bit like, Paul, are you really down on the ladies? Like you're not going to let them have a voice in this? And I think when you understand what Paul's saying, you find out that it's way more nuanced than that. He's already said he wants elders to be godly men. And now what I think he's saying is, and those godly men are the ones who take the lead in teaching the doctrines of the church to the congregation. He says, I want them to be the one that's do this. Does that mean that women never have any part in that? No, we learn from the rest of the New Testament epistles that a woman can pray and prophecy in church. She sings with everybody else. There are other venues where women are actually called to be teachers. Titus chapter 2 says the older women are to teach the younger women how to love their husbands, how to raise their kids, how to be godly women. So God's involving men and women in teaching. In fact, did you know that in one sense we teach each other all the time? Colossians 3.15, let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, as we go through life, there are times when we'll be having a conversation, a man and a woman, and that woman will say something, you'll go, wow, thank you, that's what I needed. There's a teaching that goes on. 
But when it comes to the gathered congregation, the church, Paul is saying, you know what God wants? He's calling men to step up and be those godly men who are elders who can teach the congregation. So what I'm saying here is that both in the home and in the church, both in marriage and in ministry, God uses a similar pattern of leadership. He calls godly men to give godly leadership, good leadership. Now, I have some dear friends who, if they were sitting here today, and maybe, maybe this would be you, I have some dear friends, if they were sitting right here, they would be doing all they could to be biting their lips and keeping quiet. Because they'd be saying, you're missing it. That's not it. You're, you're presenting something that's not the full picture. No, no, no. They would just be feeling that. They, they would say things like this. Wait a second. What about Galatians 3.28? What about Galatians 3? It says there's neither male nor female. I mean, in the, in, under the new covenant, those old distinctions have been obliterated. And now all sons and daughters of God have the same roles and the same opportunities what do we say to those, our friends? I have family members who I love deeply who would say that. Well, let's start off. What do we say about Galatians 3.28? Let's turn there. I've referenced it. Galatians 3.28 is sometimes called the Magna Carta of liberation for men and women when it comes to ministry. Let me show you why. Look at Genesis, or Galatians 3.28. It says this. There is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you read the literature on this topic, you'll read this verse brought up many, many times where biblical scholars or writers will say this. That verse shows us that God's heart for his church under the new covenant is that all the old distinctions go by the side and now we're all one in Christ, which means that we're all the same, we, which means if it comes to elders or whatever, it could be who's ever the godly person, godly men or godly women. Galatians 3.28, towers above everything else. Well, I would say Galatians 3.28 is an incredible verse. And for the women who lived in the first century, for them to be elevated like this, what Paul does, would have been a breath of fresh air. Because if you've done the study of kind of Second Temple Judaism, early Greco-Roman culture in the time of Christ, you know that women often were treated very small, very marginalized. And so what Paul is saying here is radical. It is radical. But I would argue that it's not identical to what some people think Paul is saying. Here's why. Remember how we've been taught when you look at a verse, you've got to study the verse in its context. You can't just pull one verse out and then not look at what comes before and after. Well, look what comes right before it. Go back to verse 25. Paul's talking about the place of the law in Galatians 3, and then he says this, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, which is reference to the law, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You say, wait a second, we're not all sons, we're men and women. What's with that? He's arguing there that in their culture, the son had a specific place of privilege. And he's saying, all of you have that place of privilege. You're all sons in that sense. Okay? And then he goes on to say in verse 27, 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abram's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. In Galatians 3, what Paul is arguing this, that when it comes to salvation, it's true. There are no distinctions. Doesn't matter if you're Greek or Jew. Doesn't matter if you're barbarian or Scythian. Doesn't matter if you're a male or female. When it comes to your standing as an heir of Christ, as a son or daughter of Christ, of God, as part of the Abrahamic family, you get there by faith in Christ. And once you're there, you have same standing as everyone else. We are equal before God in our salvation. In our creation, we're equal before God. In our salvation, we're equal before God. But I don't think Paul in this passage is talking about our service for Christ. He's talking about our standing in Christ. The other passages fill in on how it doesn't change our worth, but it does change our work. The other passages go to explain that. By the way, if you have a little trouble thinking, why would God put some people in this position and some people in the other position? Wouldn't that create tension? Is that, is that the way God acts? Well, I would say this. You know, if you, a lot of you are taking Old Testament right now. One of the things you'll find in the Old Testament is that all of the Israelites were servants of the Most High God, but they didn't all have the same role. Right? They were the Levites. And only the Levites could be in the tabernacle and later the temple. And of the Levites, only the tribe of Aaron... Then the sons of Zadok could do the priesthood. In other words, all the Israelites had standings as God's sons and daughters, but some of them were given a different role. I think you find the same thing within the Trinity. I read an interesting book uh, by Fred Sanders on the Trinity. And one of the things he, he, he talks about, some of the church fathers, who talked about when you look at the Son and the Spirit, both sent right? The Son was sent, the Spirit is sent. He says they're both sent, but they have different roles in the economy of salvation. So even within God's triune nature, there is some distinctions in terms of how they function, how God functions as Father, Son, and Spirit. So when it comes to the New Testament, what I'm saying is this, is that I believe the Bible is teaching this. We are equal in essence, but not identical in roles. That God designed us to serve together, partner, and God determines how we partner together. Well, let me go on to a third thing, because the third thing now unites us in a deep way. The third thing I want you to see is this. God empowers men and women as they partner in ministry. God empowers men and women as they partner in ministry. I think here's one thing that we can say. We come before God and all of us would say the same thing. Lord, we need you. Like if you want us to do what you've called us to do, we need your help. And God comes by his Holy Spirit to empower both men and women for our callings. Yesterday, it was a sunny day, so Linda and I went out in our backyard. And some of you have been at our house. You know, we got this big hill, and we got all these bushes up there. And some of them need to be kind of chopped down for the winter. So I was up there with some bags to earth and stuff and stuff in the bags. And Linda had, Linda, I, got, I have this electric hedge trimmer. You know, one of those things that goes, and you plug it in. And uh, so she was there. And so she said, let me, I'll chop down some of these, uh, you know, daylilies and uh, hostas and all these things that need to be chopped down. And she told me this morning, she said, you know, I was just cutting through that stuff. It was like a knife going through hot butter. It was just, it was like, and she said, I started at one point, she goes, I actually remember thinking like, 
I'm doing this pretty awesome. Like, I, I am, I'm, I'm tearing through these bushes. And just then, the power, she somehow didn't realize, but the cord got jiggled, and it stopped. And then she said, and I realized suddenly, I'd been thinking, I got this, and now I couldn't even cut through anything because I'd lost my power supply. And then she told me, sometimes I get that way in ministry. I'm just going at it, and it seems like things are going smooth. Things are going good. God, I got this. And if I get disconnected from the power source in a quick hurry, I realize I got nothing. And that's true for men, and that's true for women when it comes. We need the Holy Spirit's power to do what he's called us to do. Quickly, let me just highlight three ways the Spirit of God empowers us. The Spirit of God empowers us through, through bestowing spiritual gifts. My reading of the New Testament is this. When God gives out gifts, they are not gender-specific. God gives gifts to men and women so he can give the gift of teaching to a woman, just like he gives the gift of teaching to a man. He can give the gift of mercy, the gift of leading. All those gifts he distributes them, we're told in 1 Corinthians 12, as he wills. Now, how they use those gifts are determined by his boundaries, but he gives those gifts, so he empowers us through his gifts. Secondly, God empowers through ripe, God's spirit empowers through ripening spiritual fruit. Not just spiritual gifts, but spiritual fruit. Hey, here's one thing you'll discover in ministry if you haven't already figured it out. Much of your effectiveness in ministry is not going to be about your giftedness. It'll be about your character. Like, you could be the most gifted person on the block. But what will make the difference often is, are you filled up with the Spirit and has He conformed you into the image of Christ? Are the Spirit's graces, His fruit ripening in your life, love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and so on, right? So God's Spirit empowers us by ripening spiritual fruit. And then the third thing, God's Spirit empowers us through producing spiritual impact. If anything good comes from my service or your service, guess who gets the credit? Guess where the power source is? It's not my words, not your words. Not my actions, not your actions. It's God's Spirit graciously working through us, empowering the little uh, hedge trimmer that we are so that we actually can make some difference, okay? So both men and women, we stand equally before God in our essence, but also in our need. We say, Lord, I need you. If I'm going to do what you've made me to do, I'm going to need you. And that leads me to my last one, my last fourth thing I want you to see. I'd put it this way. God gives joy to men and women as they partner in ministry. God gives joy to men and women as they partner in ministry. Brothers and sisters, here's what concerns me. So often this topic is a source of tension and contention between Christians and between men and women. Like we talk about this and blood pressures rise and tempers flare. And I'm thinking, wait, wait, wait a second. That's not the tone of scripture on this. That's not the heart of God on this. You look over scripture and you see God giving joy to men and women as they partner in ministry. For example, Jesus had 12 disciples, all men. But it, when you read the gospels, there's a wider circle. He has a bigger posse than that. He has a bigger entourage than that, right? There were a number of godly women who were a part of that circle. And they were also, go and there was this sense of they felt loved. In fact, who were the first witnesses of the resurrection? Who did Jesus go talk to first? Well, it was the women. So there's joy, as we see in the in ministry of Jesus. Jesus elevated women. 
He treated them in a way that caused women to be attracted to him because they thought never anyone taught like him and never does anyone act like him. So there's this joy. You come to the, the apostles. Paul is often seen as kind of the woman hater. Like there's a lot of literature out there that just kind of goes, you know, we like Jesus, not so much Paul. And I go, I don't think you're understanding Paul. Read Romans 16. Paul gives shout out to all his friends in Rome. He lists 28 names, 10 of whom are women. And he says, hey, greet Phoebe. Man, Phoebe is a servant of the church. I love that lady. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. Man, they are, they're my teammates. They risked their life for me. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet Mary. He's, he lists all these women and says, greet these women. Man, they worked hard in the Lord. These are my colleagues. These are my coworkers. You get a sense of joy and honor as you read that. I think that's the way it's supposed to be. So let me wrap it up with some implications. What can we say by way of wrapping it up? I got three for you. I'm sure there's more than three, but let me give you at least these three. Number one, both men and women are needed as partners in ministry. Both men and women are needed. There should be no unemployment in the church because God needs both men and women. And what I want to say to you women here today is this. You are vitally needed in God's larger work. You are vitally needed. And sometimes I would have to admit as a man that we as men have failed to reflect to you as women how needed you are, how appreciated you are, and how valued you are. And when we don't reflect that, I think we do a disservice to God's heart and God's word. So I want to say to those of you who are godly women serving the Lord, please keep at it. Please develop all your gifts. That's why at Heritage, we're delighted to train both men and women, because we feel you women are vitally needed, vitally needed. Men, I would say the same thing to you. Brothers, we need you. You are vitally needed. In fact, if I could say anything to the men, I'm usually a little harder on the men than I am on the women, because I, I would say to the men, men, you've got to step up. Often the women are carrying their part of the load and then some. I was at a missions meeting on Saturday night, and uh, we heard from a lady named Teresa who's been a missionary in the Middle East for a number of years. She was telling about the kids. She lives in a danger zone. She's working with all these kids in the Middle East. And this is what she said. She goes, you know, we're out there here, and these are my two female uh, interns that have come from North America to help me. And then she's not, she's not bashing men. She's not angry. She, in fact, she was joyful. She just said, we could sure use some men. And then she said this. She goes, where are the men? Where are the men? She said it twice. And in my, my heart, I thought, you're right. Why is it that it's often the women that are going into the most dangerous places on the planet? Where are the men? I would say, men, we are vitally needed. Do not pull back. Do not be beaten down by a culture that tells you to pray the red-green prayer. I'm a man but I can change if I have to, I guess. Like, don't buy into that. That's not from the Bible, by the way. That's not the Lord's prayer, right? In fact, it's the opposite. God says to you as a man, you are needed. So, so by the power of the Spirit, step out, lead, sacrifice yourself. Serve. Both men and women are needed. Here's the second thing. 
Both men and women should embrace God's design for ministry. Brothers and sisters, what I have said to you today doesn't matter at all unless it lines up with the Bible, right? I've asked you at the beginning to be Bereans. But if what I've said today, as you study it, reflects what the Bible says, then get this. You, like I, am underneath the Word of God. We're not over the Word of God. We don't trumpet. We don't get to choose this. We are followers of Jesus and His Word. And so you and I need to embrace gladly what God has given to us graciously. And then finally, the test of whether we are doing this well. Here's, here's my test of whether or not we're actually living this out well. Here's the test. People flourish. Like, if we are living this model out in a way that's damaging to people, either men or women, we're not, we're not somehow, we haven't got it yet. If we are doing this in a way where women, godly women say, I'm so glad for this. I feel protected. I feel valued. I feel honored. I feel esteemed. I'm going, okay, we're getting closer. And if we're doing this in a way where men say, I feel challenged. I feel empowered. I feel, I feel encouraged to lead. Then I go, okay, we're getting closer on this. None of us will ever hit this perfectly, this side of heaven. But all of us must say, God, by your grace, according to your word and by your spirit's power, I'm going after your design. You are the creator. You made us. You know what you meant when you made a man. You know what you meant when you made a woman. So Lord, as a man, let me be a man. Lord, as a woman, let me be a woman. And let me embrace your design and live out your plan for your glory, the good of your church, and the salvation of the world. And that's my prayer for each of us. Let's pray. Father, I ask for these men and women, each one vitally important in your work and valuable to you. I pray that you would help them come to an understanding of what your word says and then a glad embrace of it as always given for our good and your glory. And I pray that from this school, you would send out a host of men and women who are not confused about who they are as men and women or who they are as sons and daughters, but who would be able to move into your churches and bring life and vitality and flourishing. And I pray this for the greater glory of your name. In Christ's name, amen.